Thanks for listening to the Media People Podcast, lively and insightful chats with the people who power the media industry. I'm your host, Victor Genova. For more episodes, you can go to mediapeople.ca or subscribe wherever you get podcasts. Views expressed by participants are personal. If you look back at Krista Webster's high school career, nobody would blame you for thinking she was headed straight for Broadway. The arts, especially music theater, played a major role in her teenage years. But her professional career would bring about the opportunity to work with a relatively new type of performer, influencers. Krista is the president and CEO of Veritas Communications, Canada's largest influencer marketing agency that walks the line between public relations and marketing. But how did Krista go from performer to influencer agency CEO? You could argue that the clues are in her university career. Krista pivoted away from performing arts, pursuing an undergraduate degree in English literature and women's studies. Not only did it help Krista hone her writing skills, but set her up for success when completing her master's in journalism. Krista Webster stops by to chat about growing up in suburban Toronto, how extracurricular activities and teachers shaped her time in high school, taming the art of retail sales at her local Gap, and her accomplishments in the PR and marketing world. So Veritas Communications is the largest influencer marketing agency in Canada, um, proudly walking the line, I would say, between um, public relations and marketing. I often coined it tradigital because it really took the tenets of communications and the fundamentals of PR from a strategic standpoint, but progressively also looked to where, as Gretzky says, the puck was going, which to me was social influencer all the way at a time, even when I joined in, in 2009. Um, no one was even talking about influencer, perhaps except for P&G and other clients I'd worked at globally, um, but really it was not part of the vernacular of even the industry. And so uh, I thought it was really important to not abandon our roots, which are strategic, but really look to how we can take um, an agency to the next dimension, which isn't just digital. It really is to me influencer and the power of storytelling um, through the, the many different kinds of expressions that, that can, can come to life in. So. So we're a bit of a hybrid, but I would say today we're—I always feel like we're—we're we're hopefully leading the pathway towards what's next um, as digital and influencer continues to evolve. And happily, um, I've seen a metamorphosis in the industry of embracing influencer at a heightened level. Sometimes not necessarily the way I would define it, but certainly um, the interest in influencer is higher than it's ever been. And I, I, I'm proud that I believe that really has a lot to do with what my team has been able to do um, with, with Veritas over the years. Well, I'm definitely glad we were able to put this together because you and I have been trying to do this episode for a number of times and for various reasons it's been pushed back. So I'm glad we were able to button it up today. And when I was doing my research, I learned something about you. You and I are from the same hometown. So you were born and raised in Mississauga. I am a Mississauga suburban girl. So what was life like growing up in Mississauga for you? You know, I actually think that um, my value set and my hopefully my I try to be compassionate and empathetic. I don't always pull that off, but I think that um, in in the world that we're in, uh, I grew up with the most diverse friend group. Mississauga, when I was growing up, really was, I think, the epicenter of where a lot of immigrants were coming into Canada. And um, so I had the benefit of growing up in a place that felt very safe but every single neighbor was different um, from, uh, you know, it, it's different, diverse, 
Uh, and we're all joined by the, the common uh, desire to, to have uh, a great life and to play and enjoy life outside too, which these days I'm making myself sound very old, but um, it, was a, it was a place where I would go to the creek with my girlfriends and we would, you know, do what you do down there. Probably not too much mischief, but just, you know, fun times. <laughs> and, 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 you know, my, girl, my girlfriends were Italian and Portuguese and Filipino and black. And I mean, there really was a, that, it was that diverse. Um, and I really feel um, prideful that I would ended up in a place like Mississauga um, because I don't think I would be as aware um, of my surroundings and have the, also the interest of really working beyond Toronto, right? I think that also opened my eyes to the fact that there's other people and other things in the world and that a global point of view is really important. My summary for Mississauga is it's the home of the three S's, shopping malls, schools, and subdivisions, with about 800,000 people packed into that. A hundred percent. And I, I happily, I also spent a lot of time at the malls, um, not just shopping, but I worked at the mall. I mean, I really was that girl who, you know, went to, she worked at the Gap. I always tell people I, my first job, actually my first job was at Pet Value. My second job was at the Gap. And, um, you know, even working in retail in the suburbs, um, I remember uh, Mickey Drexler at the time was the uh, head of the Gap. And for anybody who works in retail, Mickey is like, he started J. Crew and a bunch of things. And she came to, um, to square one to find this tiny little thing who was selling more, more things at the Gap than he'd ever heard of. And, it, and he walked in as a surprise to meet me. And that was, you know, and I was all of probably 17 years old, but that was, the, again, the desire and the drive to have a part-time job came from my parents. The desire to be better came from the world that I grew up in, which really was, again, a shared community of people who want to improve. And, um, and I have the benefit of even learning through those kinds of experiences of being at the mall um, and, and making that sort of the, the, the most diverse mall probably in Canada is square one. And that was my, my foundation, my playground for really getting into probably the power of persuasion and PR and marketing and understanding the value of hard work. So how many of those Gap hoodies do you have? Because that was all the rage at one point. You couldn't just have one. You had to have it in multiple colors. You know the one I'm talking about, just a gap right across the chest. I know. I don't, I I wish I could say I kept a lot of them, though I I did go through many iterations of the gap hoodie. Um, But what I can do for you, if we ever meet in person, um, and for the audience as they hear, is I can immediately meet someone and tell you what your inseam is. So I'm not sure if that's a a good or bad thing, but (laughs) I, I really can actually fit anybody in any jean or pant that they want. And I will tell you that the Gap, I know they've been gone, going through some hard times, but they will come back um, because there's a, you know, they're, they're classic and they are, believe in innovation. And I think any brand, and that's possibly also why I'm so interested in brands and where they come from and the journeys that they take. But uh, my one of my little special secret things is I can help people fit jeans. So if you ever want to go on a shopping spree with me, we can go back to Mississauga and we can do that together, Victor. Well, as long as it's stretch denim, because... <laughs> You never know what you're going to be having for dinner the night before. We'll go to the, we'll go to the food court as well. We'll make it a full, full stop. And you spent your entire, I mean, your childhood and your teenage years in Mississauga, correct? Um, I was, uh, yeah, yeah. I've seen Mississauga, different parts of Mississauga. I was born, um, Toronto general. And, uh, we, I think we spent a few, a few minutes in Barrie and then moved back to, uh, to Mississauga. So pretty much that was, that was my foundation. 
So what were your interests or hobbies growing up? Like what kept you occupied apart from working at The Gap and Pet Valley? Apart from working. I was a big musical theater girl. I spent a lot of time. Um, I love drama. I, I don't love drama, but I loved drama. <laughs> um, and I, I think that that, again, was uh, looking to my, you know, the, the people that inspired me um, really were my teachers and my principals and others around me who saw something in me. So I would, I joined a lot of the musical theater, um, just loved that. I love to sing. I love to write. So I did a lot of creative writing then. I was probably really annoying as a little brown noser, right, where I decided not to do recess, but to write something extra. Um, but that was kind of who I was. And I, I sort of was okay with that too, being sort of, I was popular and nerdy at the same time. And I think that that's a really interesting way to be. Um, I'm, and I really think a lot of that had to do with the confidence building that I got through the teachers and others around me who saw something in me and that spark. And I think it's really important for anybody growing up to have um, someone identify what they see in you that you haven't seen yet. Um, beyond that, I did a lot of painting. I really was an arty girl. I tried cheerleading. I jokingly say in high school, I did that, I think just to date the football players. Um, I did date the quarterback and I really wasn't very good at cheerleading. And that was very short lived, both the relationship and the, and the cheerleading. But in general, um, you know, academics for me were incredibly important. And, um, and, and I was okay. As I said, I was a bit of a nerd, but I also had a good group of friends. And, and I think the foundation of writing and obviously, you know, getting in front of people to perform, that wasn't a natural thing for me. I didn't feel comfortable on stage until I really turned into a character. It was actually a way for me, I think, uh, to go outside of my comfort zone. And so I was pushing myself for whatever reason. But I enjoyed the performance and the audience and making people smile and laugh. And, and that was really something that uh, obviously I think even in my profession today, I took with me. Okay. I've got to ask, I think I might know the answer to this already, but you mentioned music theater was a big part of your life. Did you go to Cawthra Park Secondary School? I didn't, but I wanted to. And I will, I will give love to my, my parents, but they really wanted me to go to Catholic school. So I wasn't allowed to go to Cawthra Park. Oh, so where did you was, go to high school? I went to Philip Pocock. So, which actually had a really pr big drama um, program as well. So we did a lot of we did a lot of plays, and there was a lot of great talent. And even in um, in when I was in elementary school, I went to St. Basil, which also had a really strong um, principal who enjoyed it, and he really made like the. I think Missis all of Mississauga would come to our performances because it really was that kind of place. And uh, so, but I always had envy, secret envy of all the all the the girls and boys who went to Cawthra Park. Yeah, off mic, I could off mic, I could share stories with you about that place. <laughs> oh, did you go here. there? I did go there. Yep. Oh. Uh, and so that's why I was a little skeptical because you mentioned you're like I dated the quarterback, and I'm just like, well. Because when I started at Cawthra, we didn't have a football team. And the rumor was that literally like a year or two prior, they had sold all of the football equipment and divested from football to put the money into a baby grand piano, which we well, did have a brand new baby grand piano. But it was something that the teachers never really confirmed. They were just like, we're not talking about this. So I, I wasn't sure if you and I just missed each other by a little bit there. Well, I wish we did miss each other by a little bit. But I will say that probably the investment in the grand piano was was a better one. I also did play piano up to grade eight. So I did that too. And I'll tell you, um, I'm not sure I could play anything right now. It's amazing how I 
took piano, I like I, you know, and it, and it's, I hope it will come back because I've actually been thinking about getting a piano, not, not a baby grand, but a piano lately because I want to sort of go back to trying to figure out if the mathematical side of that comes back along with the, just hopefully some, some raw talent somewhere in there. So you um, got up to, was Royal Conservatory grade eight? Did you also do Royal Conservatory theory as well on the side? Yes, I did both. Oh, I avoided the theory, although I had to take it at Cothra, but my God. Yeah, it's I, hard. I, it's really hard. Yes, yeah. that makes you think. I will say that even though I have not touched a keyboard in years, I kind of played around with one. They had an electric one at Costco a couple of weeks ago, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. it was starting to come back. I'm like, oh, there's middle C after all. What can I do from there? It's true. It's true. I hope I hope it will because I feel like that's it's again it's a foundation piece, right? I always I kind of think I think of myself and based on some of the things you have to take over the years in terms of your personality uh, assessments and whatnot, I am equally right and left brain. So I think learning piano or learning to read music and the theory that goes with that really does, um, as you know, really pushes the uh, mathematical side of that, right? And and it's not as easy. That wasn't as natural to me as the, obviously the more um, communication side, the the more art side. So, but it was good. It was good. It pushed me out of my comfort zone to do that. I can tell you, piano did not help me with grade 12 math, let alone calculus. <laughs> so fair. it didn't do those papers for me. That's fair. Yeah. And you can see that I didn't touch dating the quarterback when you brought it up again. <laughs> <laughs> that really, that really was more to, I think, um, upset my dad. <laughs> I think I just wanted to do that as a, right. I wasn't really interested in the quarterback. He wasn't very smart, not to stereotype, but it was more just, I think, to push, push the buttons a little bit. Why do you cite your teachers and the principals as being some of your biggest influences growing up? That was just, so I have incredible parents who were both hardworking. You know, I grew up in a very middle-class family. So my dad was a a sales and marketing exec who spent a lot of time on the road flying all over the world, which I think has also made me always interested in that. My mother um, was uh, only just retired as a nurse uh, before COVID and she was his hardworking. So I grew up really as that that generation with my brother where we kind of fended for ourselves during the day and they came home and we had a great life and we we're all taken care of, but we spent a lot of time being independent. And so my my influences of seeing something in me and really wanting to also, I think, I think, you know, people, I think I I will speak for myself first. I think I've always naturally wanted validation. That's probably comes from the fact that you don't have as much attention because your parents and everything are working. And so I sought that through, um, you know, you, you got an assignment. Well, I decided to do two assignments. I mean, that's really annoying now. I think that, but it's like, I, I wanted to show that I had the, the desire. It didn't come from, in fact, my father, we used to say, maybe you should take today off. You work a little too hard, you know? And I'd be like, no, no, dad, I have to go to school. I have to be on time. I have to do all this. So I just had the benefit of some incredible teachers and um, some incredible principals who, uh, this may not be the case for everybody else, but were really quite kind and empathetic and saw, saw, saw star power in me in terms of my intellect and my desire to, to go further. They were a huge part of you know um, my career planning, even as a young age. I won awards because of them. It wasn't just my own. It, it, you know, they helped me cultivate um, what I would say was, you know, not perfect, but, but the potential. And I think when you have the support, uh, they also saw the weaknesses in me. They probably saw the, 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 you know, I was also, I could, I'm actually an introvert who's become an extrovert. So I think that they saw the ability 
um, of helping to bring me out of my shell a little bit, even though I think people today would naturally think I'm, I'm just an extrovert. So I, they, I just had the benefit of some incredible teachers, which I think teachers often get dumped on. I think that that's unfortunate, but I did not have that experience. I really had uh, an incredible group of, of people around me who really, really helped me become the, the woman I am today. You mentioned something about seeking validation and always going above and beyond. Do you think that's why you got into, or at least part of why you enjoyed the performing arts so much? Because when you get that applause after you're done playing a song or you finish, you finish a play or a musical and you get a chance to bow for the crowd, I mean, there's no greater rush than something like that. Like, I'm sure there are other rushes that are greater than that, but that's a rush that's very hard to replicate. I, I agree. And you're probably saying that from your own perspective too, Victor, I imagine, right? If you went to Cawthorne Park and you're a performer, I was a performer. I think, I think you're right. I think there's a couple of things. I think since I was little, I was a performer. I was making up stories. I had the kids at the end of the, the driveway listening to me, apparently telling stories. Probably they were all completely untrue. Um, like I was a bit of a fibber, as they would say, you know, like that's not true. And I would turn something that's maybe not that interesting to something really interesting. And so it clearly came from um, a need for validation, which is okay. I think that that's fine, right? You are who you are and you, and then, and then the applause, the idea of doing when even you're doing performing arts, to your point, as you said, at the end, when you get that applause, nothing feels better. And I think nothing feels better in my case where I was doing that with a cast. So it was the validation you also got about being with a team to do it. As much it was, as it was the audience, it was also the feeling that, that you had with your cast of team members. And that I really enjoyed too, which I think is not unlike our agency world where, you know, you can win on your own, but you never win on your own, right? The win is always team-based. And when you can do it and, you, uh, and find a harmony together to actually win that pitch or help that client or come up with an idea that no one has that ever imagined would be possible, that really is, again, that, that validation that is just so exciting. Considering everything you did within the performing arts, I kind of a little bit surprised to see that when you graduated and you went to Western University, you were actually majoring in English literature and women's studies. So <laughs> what, brought you, what brought you towards that? Because you would have looked at that and said, okay, she's going to go into theater or music theater and university. You can just see the progression right there. But this is a bit of a pivot, I want to say, even though in English literature, I know you are studying things like Shakespeare and, and other playwrights as well. I think there was a moment where, and it wasn't discernible, where there was a someone said something or my parents said something. I think I started to realize for whatever reason, and it's, and you know, what it should have, could have, that if you do drama, that's not serious. Okay. And so I think I had to suddenly go from, I'm like the, I have the top marks in high school. And so am I going to go do drama or should I go and, you know, go to English literature? Women's studies just happened to be something that Western offered, which today means something very different than even when I went in there. I mean, I was naively going into women's studies. What I found incredibly eye-opening and remarkable about that is that it was a really interesting perspective across the board from anthropology to film studies to sociology theory and criticism so it applied you know the idea of feminism in a really strategic and creative way and it and it, it broadened my idea of what you know women faced and where we're going and then add to that i could still you know uh enjoy the the creative side of english lit which to me was very closely linked to drama 
um, and my writing and my desire to write. And so I think I just thought, I don't exactly know what I want to be yet, but I think there's a reason why I shouldn't be an actress, right? Which maybe I should have been Victor, but anyway, I think I get, I think I get to do a lot of that in the career I'm in, but you're not wrong. I think, I, I think there was a implied, that's not serious. I've got something I layer onto that, a, a personal experience, not so much for me, but one of my roommates in my last year at Brock University or my last semester, I was rooming with the drummer from the band, The Trues, and oh. he was rarely ever around because they were always touring. He just needed a bass, and that's why he was renting a room in this house alongside me, and that's where the band chose to rehearse. And I remember we were just having a conversation, and I said, you know, what are your experiences like in a band having this as a profession? And he said something very similar to what you said, or it, they kind of border with each other. He goes... When we're in Europe, people don't really know who we are and you're making small talk in a bar and people ask what you do and you say, I'm in a band. And they go, okay, yeah. cool. They treat it like a profession. Whereas he found in Canada, and even when he was in the United States, they'd make small talk, that same small talk. They go, what do you do? And he'd be like, I'm the drummer in a band called The Trues. They'd kind of be like, well, what, what's your job though? Like, what's your day job? Like they would just right. treat it like maybe he was doing that every Friday night at the local dive bar. So it's, <laughs> it, it's funny because that mindset isn't there. And I kind of blame boomer parents. And I know my mom's listening to this and she's going to get angry that I brought that up, but like boomer parents who grew up in a unionized environment. And even if they didn't like their jobs, they knew that they were set with their pension. There was a certain level of comfort and predictability that came with it. I think that's why it's frowned on so much because they had that, if I can use the term opportunity, and they don't want to see anyone get outside of that, that safety net because they know it's really feast or famine if you do go into the arts and try to make a career of it. I think you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. I mean, my mother came from a very large, you know, um, um, Irish family of many siblings and they're all hardworking and you know, their choices were teacher, you know, teacher, nurse or secretary. Right. And I use the word secretary because that's what it was then. And so and, and my so I think there was a natural. Oh, my God our daughter's not going to get a job, right? Like there's- Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> what they think. Right? And so, um, and yet, you know, I think about when I, at a certain point in, when I was younger, there was an agent that had approached me or something with my father. My father was quite actually, um, he was more of a proponent of me doing child acting and things like that. And my mother was like, uh, no, I don't want her to turn into one of those spoiled kids. That's the, right? It's and the I, horror I, stories. That's what they hear. The true Hollywood stories. And, that's right. And she also, and to be fair, she was like, and I'll end up having to take her everywhere. So that's such a, that's also the generation I'm in where like today, the parents are like, I'll move the mountains to do everything. Right. And in this case, they were more worried about the logistics and not having to deal with like whether I go to audition or not. So, you know, you have, you grow up in a pragmatic time too at that. But I, I think that, um, I think I had still been able to delight in some of the things that you would have, I would have hopefully, Hopefully I would have been a successful actress, who knows? Um, but it doesn't really matter because what I'm doing, I feel like I get to to bring a lot of that kind of um, creativity into where I am. And and yeah, that they, at the end of the day, it is about storytelling. So I, I also, I am a person who really didn't know what I wanted to do. I wanted to do everything growing. So when I did the undergrad, I really did that to more, just to, just to learn. And then I was faced with, well, what am I actually going to do next? And that was, again, I didn't have the same influence, I would say, as when I was younger in school. You're really on your own, right? And I'm from a generation, Gen X, where you actually are making decisions. You don't, like, you don't have your, everybody involved in those decisions and uh, in the way that is done today, right or wrong, right? And so I kind of was, the, I was a little bit lost in terms of what I wanted to do. I, I, 
got into law school, I got into med school. I got, which is shocking. I was the only RD that got into med school. I think I probably <laughs> would not, I think I probably would not have graduated at McMaster, but at least I got in and I, and then I got into uh, journalism school because I want, really, really wanted to be was uh, I decided a professor, um, an English professor. Again, it was like, right. And so I thought, well, if I do a master's in journalism, I'll at least have a master's and I can go back and do my PhD. And I can also write and maybe do other things in the meantime. So that there was not a thought process that was exactly logical. It was more proving to myself I could get into the things and then went, oh, well, I don't want that. You know, it was like I had to, again, it was my own sort of, I'm going to go above and beyond um, just to see. But it, I, I, what I love about um, what I see even in the team members I have today is they had a um, more more options, but really more support, more of a, you know, more mentors, if we want to say that can, that in their parents, but in others that actually are helping kids today figure out what to do. And I, I think that's really great. I don't think that's a bad thing at all. I think it's uh, the more the more the merrier in terms of input. Ultimately, you have to make your own decision, but it's not always it's not always a good thing to be independent in how you're you know what you're you're deciding. These are important things. Happily, I think my my path wasn't exactly straight, but I do feel that it I ended up in the right place. So the masters in journalism. You mentioned that there were a number of different directions you could have gone in. And I'm wondering what made you pick that versus say, because if the if the if the end goal was always to get your PhD and to be a professor and to stay within English literature, why not say an MA or an, an MLit? Because my English professors at the time said there's no jobs. Oh, <laughs> and, and they said there's no tenure and you're too smart to like stick around waiting for that, which I'll, I'm saying they said that I didn't say that about myself. Um, and so maybe they were flattering me at the moment. Maybe they didn't think I'd actually get in. Uh, who knows? But they so I chose um, something related that also was very hard to get into. And so I, of course, the competitive side of me is like, I'm going to see if I can get into that, too. And I did. Um, and so I thought, well, at least it's somewhat related to writing, to, you know, strategic thinking, to a lot of things that also could be at least practical. So while we're waiting for um, professors to have, you know, get tenure again and for jobs to open up, this would give me the opportunity to work in the business for a, a few years and then decide to go back and do my PhD. So uh, that's so the practical that. element of it. That's right. Before we move on to something else, I wanted to ask you, because you were a performing arts student, do you really, do you get a rush from say public speaking or presenting in person? Cause I absolutely adore that. I love preparing for it. I love delivering. It's kind of like a performance for me. Even like what I'm doing right now is in its own way a performance. Like, do you find that you get to indulge that for that side of yourself from your teenage years that was always on stage when you go out and you present to a client, whether you're pitching new business or doing a post analysis report or anything like that, or just maybe you're public speaking at a conference? I, I do love it. I love it. And I still have a tiny little bit of fear, which is good. Right. I think I, I love the, the adrenaline, the, you know, I, I, it's like you're looking over a cliff and you hope that you're going to, you know, and, and I love actually surprises when you're presenting and something happens or someone says something and then you listen and you can pivot. I love to be surprised even when I'm presenting. So that's an adrenaline rush for me. So I do, I, I absolutely love the performance side of it. Although I would say the best the best examples, whether you're giving a, a speech or whether you're on a panel or whether you're presenting to a client or even in a pitch, it comes from a place of listening and authenticity. So as much as it's a performance, what I've learned over the years is it's much more important to just be who you are and you'll get even more of a rush out of that. 
um, as opposed to being too scripted. I think I, I do better less scripted. <laughs> um, and I think I've learned that of myself too. I don't know what that means about me or not, but my adrenaline and rush and excitement comes from when I can navigate something with even with, with surprises and not necessarily as rehearsed. I will say coming out of university, you'd think I'd be this confident girl with her master's in journalism. She's going to do all these things. When I fell into the agency business, I was terrified to present initially. And I wasn't, and it wasn't like when I did musical theater, I wasn't either, but I got comfortable in that milieu. This was a completely different milieu that you don't learn. You just fall into agency. And I was super conscious about how young I looked and how inexperienced I was. And so I, it's interesting. So I performed and I think that's, I, so I put that idea of performance on myself in the sense that I would literally wear glasses I didn't need. I would dress in things I would never ever get to today to make myself look grown up in quotations. I would put my hair back. I was just very conscious of how I was presenting myself. And I wasn't great in that because I was restraining myself. So once I actually abandoned the restraints and had, again, an incredible boss who said, Krista, lose that, lose that and you'll just be, and just be you. That's when I started to really enjoy the adrenaline of being in the moment, presenting, even if it was lots of preparation, which it always is, I was more authentic to who I am in that. And that's where, that's my sweet spot. Your first job at a university in the media PR world was with MSL Global. And you know, what brought you to the role? And tell us a little bit about you know what your very first role was in PR and what all of that entailed. And then just kind of the growth that came after that internally at the company. Well, my first my first job was actually writing for CTV as a story producer. So if we skip over the sort of uh, and writing for magazines, I actually did a bunch of journalism. I was lucky coming out of, of school and I had a lot of jobs right away. Um, I felt like I needed to, I think, to not. And it was a lot of it was contract and freelance. So I felt like I needed to maybe get a real job again that actually was salaried. And I was recommended to an agency through a professor. And that actually was um, national PR. So I started there in pharma and through a, a few different iterations of that ended up um, at another agency that was bought by MSL. And so at the age of 28, I was the last girl standing and MSL said to me, would you like to open MSL Toronto? Um, and it was a lot to do with the fact that I had cultivated a lot of P&G work, which was, you know, with actually within a a firm that was largely more GR and public affairs, as well as some pharma uh, business. So that's how it all kind of started. From there, MSL, um, which is part of Publicis Group and it's part of a you know a very large holding company, they were very supportive of me being entrepreneurial in Toronto and doing what I needed to do to build that practice, which today, I say proudly, is still a very vibrant agency within the mix. Um, Veritas is more vibrant, but you know, who's, who's, who's kidding who Victor, but I'm, of course I'm going to say that in my competitive, but there's, you know, it's a really strong agency. Um, and then again, I played many roles. I opened Toronto. Then I was tended to be more of a creative, even though I was an operator, I was also very creative. So I ended up with the first, as you could say, PR creative director role within MSL global which was, you know, a big, it was, a, it's a big company. There were a lot of offices and the idea of a PR person having a creative director title was unheard of. 
Um, and then eventually I moved to New York and ran um, Global Consumer uh, and did had the benefit of, again, I felt like this is where I'm supposed to be. I, I literally was in New York. I've never felt more at home than in New York. Um, it's like, that's just, I like to be, um, you know, I, I, I prefer to be around smarter, more interesting people than myself. That's kind of the, and this was a place where you, you better get ready because everybody is brilliant and everybody is determined. And when I was there in that role, um, I was able to travel all over the world and open up markets and open up offices and do a lot of incredible work for big clients like P&G and Philips and, and Merck and other big, big, you know, um, meaty clients and meet and work with um, and be really a dip, like, like a very diplomatic person that tried to cultivate the best out of, um, you know, the, the German offices, the UK offices, the Asian offices, opening India, opening Russia, which, you know, today it's like, it's like there's, and having the benefit of also working with incredible leaders in the US and, and also proudly waving that Canadian flag wherever I was. So I really felt like um, that was an incredible experience for me that I, I really am thankful to them. There were, there were perfect things within that. And there were some serious things that happened there, but that also helped me grow up too. And I think that that's, that's all part of uh, the makeup of, of who you end up being as a, as a professional and as a person. I wanted to unpack a couple of things with this. So you landed in New York, your first time living outside of Canada, culture shock. Like you mentioned that you had never felt more at home than there, but was there a period where you're like right at the beginning going, I don't really know about this, a lot to get used to. There wasn't because I had spent a lot of time traveling to New York. So when I moved there, it wasn't like New York was foreign to me. I think the realization though that I was in New York and I felt like home, but I was in a position where I, most people were reporting to me. And so I couldn't really just go and hey, say, hey, let's hang out. <laughs> so trying to find a social connection um, initially was probably the most um, was probably the most difficult part of being in New York, except that within six months, I felt like I had the benefit of, because of the work I was, I was on, I had the benefit of working with not just the MSL teams, but Leo Burnett and Saatchi and all these other, Kaplan Thayer and a bunch of all the, like, these incredible other agencies at the time that were really doing outstanding work then. And, um, and I think that, so I had a friend group and a social group very quickly. There wasn't a moment where I ever didn't wake up and think this is like, I'm so lucky to be here. Even when I had to rent my teeny tiny little apartment and felt like I went back about 10 steps in 10 years in terms of space and what I was paying, it still felt like um, I, I, was, uh, I was around the people I should be around. It was so diverse, again, um, and it wasn't just in my profession. It was the the way that New York works and the number of people and that and everyone is so incredibly, um, no matter what you're doing, whether you're working in retail, whether you're the police officer on the street, whatever, everyone was very supportive of New York and supportive of people who moved to New York. I didn't have any negative experiences about people not being anything but kind and wanting to help. And so um, that to me just felt like this is a a mishmash of everything which to me from a storytelling standpoint is like, it's just so rich, but it also just felt like a very, very um, friendly, and I know New York right now is going through its own things too, but it really felt like a very friendly, uh, incredibly uh, energizing place to be. 
So I, I didn't feel um, sad or lonely there. You could walk New York yourself all day and never feel sad or lonely. You've worked extensively with pharma clients. Would you consider that to be one of the most challenging categories to plan for? Just because, depending on where you are in the world, there's a litany of regulations keeping you from doing or saying certain things. You really do have your hands tied when you are working in pharma, and you have to really, really work hard to come up with something that's completely out of the box and unique, but within the terms of the regulations as well that have been set out. A hundred percent. I think I think I think the foundation of me starting in pharma. Um, Again, as I said, I fell into PR. I fell into agency based on a, on a professor's recommendation, and the the idea of learning how to be strategic, come up with creative thinking, drive interest and awareness and advocacy within a highly regulated environment was the best training I could ever have, because it actually forces you to. First of all, think about all the audiences and be empathetic, right? It's not just about the idea you want because it's this, it's sexy. It's the idea that makes sense because you're actually hopefully driving, um, you know, a better, a better life ultimately for someone. Pharma, I know, is controversial. We could probably talk about that, Victor, for, for, you know, as an industry. I, I, again, I think the idea of people being empowered with information and having options and a lot of the work I did in pharma, of course, also worked with third parties and not-for-profits and advocacy groups. And so I saw and experienced things that I feel really, really grateful for that were humbling and made made the, the work all, you know, even more, even more rewarding. It was difficult work. You're not wrong. Every every pharma company also has its own legal and compliance and governance sets of rules too. So but I like that. I think that, as I said, I'm right and left brain. So I love the idea of having to architect things within, um, you know, being confined. And I also like to push the boundaries. So once you once you figure out what you can color within the lines, then you can actually figure out how to color outside the line. So I really feel like I also helped um, take certain clients further than they would have gone to, which is which is in, in not in a way that is is. Um, you know, um, risky in a way that is actually going to ultimately help the patients that they were trying to serve. So that parlayed into my love of consumer. I, what I really realized is that I love, I love a big canvas. Uh, I, I actually do enjoy pharma as much as I enjoy consumer. I even love issues management. And that doesn't sound, that sounds very like what you love other people's issues, but you never want them to have issues. But I do, I do really feel like your, you know, your true insides when they're pressed come out in an issue for when you're working with a client and when it's as serious as God help you death or other things that happen. And that is when the rubber hits the road. And that has been uh, incredibly, talk about adrenaline. It's adrenaline, but it's also about people's lives. And I think at the end of the day, you know, we're in the PR business, it's the people business. And it really does matter how you, how you operate for your clients, for your team, but ultimately the impact it has on the consumer. And so it's, I, I love it all. I can't tell you even one area I would do one, you know, love more than the other. I just, but I am grateful that I started in something that is so difficult <laughs> and so regulated. What brought you to Veritas Communications and did you find the role or did the role find you? The role, I, I fell into, into that role. So I was, when I was in New York, um, the former head of the holding company that owned Veritas um, was pursuant of me for about a year. 
Um, and I kept saying, no, no, I'm super happy. And I was, I was for all intents and purposes. I was, I was, you know, able to do a lot and be very, you know, it was very satisfied in that. Um, at the same time, I felt like, well, you know, how good am I? Maybe I have an entrepreneurial streak in me. And this, this group, um, that came to me really didn't have a lot of PR in the mix at all. And so he asked me if I would come and I eventually said, yes, I'll come and open uh, a PR agency for you, but I don't want to do PR. I want to do influencer marketing. And that's when he went, I'm not exactly sure what you mean by that. And obviously social media was still, was, was, was certainly becoming the focus. I said, it's much more social. It's just more, it, again, it's not, it's not um, uh, a traditional PR agency, but if you're open to the philosophy I have on that and the approach, then I, I'm willing to take the risk. And so I signed up. I remember it was like just before U.S. Thanksgiving and I was still staying in New York to do this. And I went home to see my family for uh, the holiday. Their Veritas was a sister agency within the mix of PR agencies. And so I, I thought I'll just go and see that team because you never know if I might need to, to leverage some of them. And, um, and Veritas was in a different place and it, it had a long history in the marketplace. Uh, very quickly realizing um, that it might need a little help. And so I had to face a decision of, of or am I willing to also double down on Veritas, including what I'm doing in the US, or have I made a big mistake altogether? <laughs> it was that moment of, oh, hmm, this is more than I thought and less than I thought on other things. So, um, but, you know, I remember going to a woman that I worked for actually at MSL, who was uh, really a mentor to me. Her name is Wendy Lund. She's incredible. And she said, Krista, you love challenges and you love fixing things. So just, I would say, you know, the door is always open for, for, for us, for you to come back, but try this and see what happens. So long story short, Victor, I ended up working between the U.S. and Canada. So New York and Toronto, I commuted probably three to four times a week on planes back and forth. For three to four times years. per week. Oh Correct. my God. I thought you would have said a month, but oh my knew, God, per week. It, it was a lot. It was uh, a full-time New York, Toronto life, living in both places, um, rebuilding Veritas, building something in the U.S. So it was, you know, it was not for the faint of heart, but it actually taught me a lot about who I am as a leader, what I will accept, what I won't accept, what, you know, there, there's a lot of things. I think I did a lot of growing up and that that was a really it, there were some days, I'm not going to lie, that were very difficult. And I thought, this is this is exhausting. And I there's there was just a lot of parts of it. And yet, it also, I think, um, allowed me the opportunity to build a point of view um, in both countries with people that I respect that, you know, I, I'm happy to say that some of those, those people are still with me today and are thriving and excelling and will be taking over the world at Veritas. So and are taking over the world. So there's lots of positives. It's just the Porter Airlines knew me very well. Um, <laughs> I actually launched Porter Airlines when I was at MSL and I was like, I was, I think I was the most frequent flyer they had. Um, and I also discovered that there's something called Tonys, which are the T-O-N-Ys, the Toronto, New York crew that literally um, use Porter or Air Canada and go back and forth and live this dual life. So I ended up meeting people, a lot of creatives, a lot of really interesting people. Um, Kimberly Mimran, you know, Joe Mimran used to be the ones they're always on. Like, there were lots of really interesting characters, which I love characters. I love people who are interesting and they, you know, became like a collection that you would say hi in the lounges 
you'd see them in the airports. Like it was a whole rhythm that I, that I developed. And I think that that also made me just me more interesting too, because I had more stories. I had more experiences. And, uh, and if anybody wants information on when to travel to LaGuardia and when not to, I can certainly help navigate that. I think that's, uh, that, that <laughs> I am, that and, you know, determining the size of you know, what genes you should have are two things that I can certainly help people with. Well, I think airports could use, at least Canadian airports could use all the uh, positive press they could get. Correct. That is true. Okay. So at Veritas, there was a division that you were uh, charged with starting. So tell us what meat and produce is and where did that come about and what gap does it fill? I decided we needed a little meat and produce uh, um, in, in, <laughs> in the Veritas world. So because of the evolution of, of influencer and what we were doing, again, um, you know, this is now about three and a half years, so pre-COVID, I saw the opportunity for more performance marketing, um, performance metrics and media behind um, really strong influencer-led storytelling. That is a very specific and very, you know, very specific area of what Veritas was doing, but really I think needed to be cultivated as its own as its own real um, and what is now a dominant player, right, in the space, but um, really wasn't going to get get the, the attention it deserved if it continued to be part of mothership. And so the spun out or the spin out, as our, uh, our, our PR people would like, our spin doctors would appreciate, the spin out of, um, of Veritas's M&P, and, and that is just absolutely thriving. It's thriving because it's, it's again, it's a complement to what was what is being done in the PR and influencer space, but it really is a double down in terms of how do you create compelling, compelling storytelling that's still authentic, that also uses media, that also looks at the metrics and the ever-changing algorithms of the social media landscape and allows a brand to not just drive awareness, but to convert. And I think that certainty is important in a, in the mark, in a, in a world and in a marketplace where it's often uncertain. And uh, I think because of that, it's really truly resonated. Meat and produce was really the idea of meeting and producing together, whether that's virtually or whether that's in, in real, real life, which is so IRL is now the thing. It's in again because of coming out of COVID. But it really is about creating um, you know, that synergy with a, an influencer where you're creating the brief together with the client. You're co-creating, whether it's at a, a grand scale of lots of content or whether you're doing really meaningful, um, um, you know, longer form content. But the point is, it's, it's about bringing the client and the influencer into the process together in a way that is more meaningful. And at the end result is not that it's an advertisement and that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just that it really resonates across the right channels and also really delivers in terms of what we're trying to do. So it's been uh, a great little success story, probably the best kept secret, which I have to change this year so that it's not as much of a secret. Um, but I think that uh, I'm really proud of the, the team and how they've, they've, they've continued to evolve that in a world that is evolving very, very quickly in Influencer. Would you say you were one of the OGs of Influencer marketing? Like you were on the ground floor telling everyone that this is going to be the next big thing and they need to take it seriously? I hate to admit that I I would say that I am originally one of the OGs because that made that will date me. But yes, there I I had many conversations even when we we did the trademark for Veritas of influencing the influencers. Um, I I had many stakeholders say, "What are you talking about?" Um, and so 
you know, I really had the benefit of cutting of cutting my teeth in influencer with Procter and Gamble. I will say, at a global level, they continue to be um, them. CPG companies in general, um, P and G, Kimberly Clark, like a lot of the you know the heavyweights in that space, they saw, saw influencer before anybody else did, and they understood the power of storytelling from from people that you trust and that you admire and that are slightly more aspirational than you are regardless of channel or how it's being done. And so I had the benefit of, of an incredible, I would say like the pedigree of the clients I got to work on really honed my thinking strategically and creatively. And so I was a believer and in influencer. I feel like I've been, I've been like for, you know, so many years saying we matter, we matter, it matters. And now it really does matter. And now I'm, now I'm at a place where I'm like, don't you take that away from the people who are actually the experts is everybody wants to be in it now, which is such a huge compliment, but it's also now a turf war in a different way, which also to me is, is actually really exciting because the more competitive it is, the more you see what's good, what does good look like? What is it not? You know, and, and, and it's not that it's one is wrong and one is right. It's just that we're always rewriting the story of influencer. And I think that's great. So would you say in those early days of influence mar- influencer marketing, you were spending a significant amount of time or not, maybe not a significant, but some chunk of time trying to get your superiors on board with it. And I, just to reference myself again, when I left broadcast media eons ago to go into digital, everyone thought I was crazy for mm-hmm. making that jump. So I've got to imagine that if you distill, if you distill in influencer marketing down to like its basics where, you know, sometimes someone doesn't have a great studio or they don't have a what do they call it again? A ring light or something like that, mm-hmm. but they're pumping out good content. They've got a number of followers. You probably have to work very hard to sell that through to someone at the top and go, no, this is what the future is. This is what the present is right now. Look at the engagement these people are getting just talking about whatever their favorite products or topics are. hundred percent. I think except for the ones that I said where I would say in the CPG space influencer, first of all, I would say everyone defines it differently. So I think right now it's become very much about digital influencers, right? So, and it, and it, and it, that's not wrong, but there's way more influence than just digital influencers. Authors, thought leaders, you know, depending on what the strategy is, are you managing something? Are you mitigating something? Are you looking to do something proactively? Influence is all around us. And everyone, uh, I think everyone would like to think they're an influencer. That's actually not the case. It really c- comes down to tenants of, who you are and why you're trusted and what, what, what does that mean in terms of influencing somebody else? It's the power of persuasion. That's not just, you know, not just, that isn't inauthentic. It's that someone will follow you and care what you have to say um, because you bring true value to them. So there's a lot of sort of scientific side of the business that I, of, of demonstrating what an influencer is. I spent a lot of time with clients trying to explain it. And, and really champion for it. And I think that we're at a place now where um, it's demonstrative that there's power behind influence. So I'm happy to say that we're not just at the table. I think we're setting the table. Um, so that's exciting. Uh, and I, I, I think though that I've always been, I would say not just an influencer in general, I always feel like I've been selling clients Especially in Canada, I always felt like Canadian clients got um, a bit of a bum rap on, you know, they see things tactically, they see things small, the budgets are smaller. Um, But I actually think that Canadian clients are incredibly um, um, receptive to bigger ideas. And so the adoption of influencer, I think they 
uh, some of the Canadian clients were even faster than some of the U.S. clients. In general, uh, the sales that I've had to put in, the salesmanship of um, um, of telling clients why I think they should be doing influencer has gone away. Now it's become much more complicated. It's how you should use influence. Let's not step right to the end result so quickly, even though we all want results. So there's more of a, of, um, I think now the trying to, to create more of a strategic understanding of how it can be applied because it can be applied at all levels of, of the, you know, the consumer journey and the funnel or whatever way you want to look at, at marketing today. And I think we're too quick maybe to go right to the end where it's someone to your point where they're creating content and they're just spitting it out on Instagram. I, I think that is part of it, but that's a tactic. And so I'm excited about the idea of, you know, even where ad standards is going and how we evolve that, the technology side of influencer, um, where even shoppable content is going, live streaming. There's just so many things about um, influence that are still so far away. And I say so far away, Victor, we're talking 18 months. So not that far away <laughs> okay. um, that I'm now selling again. So I'm selling a new, a new, tr um, a, a new, uh, set of luggage called influencer 3.0. Whereas, you know, it's not that we don't want to do it now. What, what can I get you to go further on? Right. What can you be do that's even more strategic now that it's uh, obviously firmly implanted in your marketing communications um, strategies? How do we take it further now so that we can go into places that you never imagined you would, you would take it to? Easily, you are one of the busiest guests I've ever had on this show. But we're, <laughs> but we're not going to stop with Veritas. You're also the vice chair of the Donor Partners Network. So tell us what's all entailed with that and, and actually what the Donor Partners Network is to start with. So the Donor Partners Network is a grouping of incredible agencies within the Stagwell group. So Stagwell is the holding company. Um, there's about 75 agencies and technology companies included in that. Most of them are digital. We're really a challenger holding company. And the DPN is an assortment of different kinds of agencies, shopper, creative commerce, experiential, um, uh, PR, influencer, everything. Um, and it's, and it's uh, U.S. and Canada based. And so it's a collection of what is then a bigger holding company. And, and you know, the, the leadership at Stagwell were smart in so much as they saw the opportunity to take like-minded, but also different kinds of agencies and, and make smaller subsets of them, but still ultimately laddering up to the bigger purpose of what, what Stagwell um, uh, stands behind. So it's, it's, it's a, I think, a really um, challenging thing for me in a good way because I'm learning as much as I've always worked, for instance, in the ad business and more on a tertiary level, I'm now really appreciating how different that business is and how different it needs to evolve and where, you know, where again do we need to be in terms of relevance to clients? Um, shopper is a whole, like shoppable moments are obviously super, super key. That's a whole art form unto itself. Experiential, the idea of creating brand acts that actually move people, but also move them to do something um, has, is being redefined every minute. So it's, it's great for me. It's like I have more tools and more agencies and more things to play with. And I think that creatively and strategically, that's just um, that's just such a such a rush. It also means being, I would say, uh, hopefully more of a coach and mentor to some incredible leaders of these agencies. And so that that has been really rewarding 
Um, I have proactively tried, um, still a long way to go, but proactively tried to add more diversity and inclusivity into the agencies. It's obviously something that it's not just on me. It's, it's an industry-wide opportunity, um, and we are certainly not there yet. And I also, you know, not that I, I, I've had some incredible male leaders and work with some incredible male leaders in, in my career and do now, but I've purpose, been very purposeful and also trying to ensure that women have some really big leadership, meaty, meaty leadership roles. So this role has afforded me to be able to do that too. Krista, you have been able to secure a series of internal promotions. What advice would you have to anyone who's listening to this podcast wants to move up one more step within their company or they want to grow a couple of more steps than having to jump somewhere else for a snazzier title and more money and more responsibility? Yeah, I think, I know it's a, it's a great question. I think it's different case by case for each person. If they want to move up, how do they do that? I think, you know, I always say we have two ears and one mouth. And so listening is as important as what we have to say. Observing. Um, I think it boils down to um, a lot of emotional intelligence where you put yourself in the shoes of others. So if you want to, you know, go to the next level, having real discussions that aren't just about you, but about how you can truly help support the person that you're reporting to or the team around you and really looking at the, the, you know, maybe some of your shortcomings, but the things you also bring, not that we have to be, you know, not that we can't talk about how amazing we are, but I think having that, again, that empathy where you go, it's not just about me, even though I want to be promoted, I need to be savvy about looking about where the opportunities are. I need to make sure I surround myself with people that um, I learn from too, not just that they learn from me and be open to criticism, which is hard. It's hard. And to ask for it more often. And I also think that, um, you know, really, really asking for the opportunities for feedback to say, okay, then this is where I feel I want to go and finding people within companies and agencies in this case that see that spark like my teachers saw in me, like my, my bosses saw in me, and have real discussions, the good, the bad, and the ugly, but know that they're going to support the next, the next place. I think that um, everyone, you should never, as they say, you should never leave a place, you should go somewhere, right? It should be about where you're going next. And I don't believe you actually have to always leave agencies or leave companies to do that. Listen, in my younger years, I've had, first of all, I feel like I've had 17 different careers because of where I've lived and where I've worked and but I, I did do a lot of moving around when I was younger. And I now feel like, you know, over the many years, I, I was able to reinvent myself multiple times because I also cared deeply about what I put out. I cared deeply about how the leaders I worked with felt and wanted to hear as much from them as what I could contribute. And then I was also savvy enough to see again where, where that opportunity was and to um, gracefully, uh, but also really, you know, not, not forcefully, but I didn't wait around for them to say, Hey, what do you think of this? It was me asking and saying, is this an opportunity and should I, and can I get there? So I think, I think it's equal parts, you know, you, having that emotional intelligence, a balance of, it's not just about me, but also here's where I want to go and how can I get there and finding people who really see the good in you, but also, um, can help you polish the things that maybe still need polished. And, and they're, every single company has those, those people. Everybody does. Because ultimately, we all want that in each other. We all want to be able to, to move. And I also, you know, I, I feel really grateful that I see a lot of people that I've worked with who have gone on to other incredible careers 
as clients in other agencies. We have a lot of boomerangs. I have a lot of boomerangs in my life, right, of people who have worked with me. And I, I try really hard, as much as it even hurts sometimes, to see if some of the people you love so much leave. I believe also it's important for you to find your own path. Krista, thoroughly enjoyed our chat. Are you ready for rapid fire questions? I am. The campaign you are most proud of? Uh, Protecting Futures by P&G. It won the first ever PR lion at Con, and uh, it really was uh, ahead of its time in terms of advancing um, women's issues through uh, helping support women in India and Africa and uh, femme care. There's a, there's a lot of things about that that I think are incredibly important, but it was uh, always in Tampax and it, and it was the precursor to the Always Like a Girl campaign that I think everybody is uh, familiar with. And so that really, uh, to me, was um, uh, something I'm most proud of. Your favorite movie? Okay, so it's, I am such a movie buff that it's hard to say, but this one might shock you. My, my initial is Jaws, which I think I've seen, I don't know, 50 times. I like to be scared, and I love the idea of, uh, I still know what how it's, what's going to happen, but it's one of those things where I just think the fact that it had so many issues in the making of it, and it still, to this day, is something that is talk-worthy. Um, it's, it's, and I love the sort of the look of it cause it was done in the seventies. So it's got that grainy feel and Spielberg was like a young ingenue at the time. And so there's so many aspects of that. I just think are, are brilliant, but I could go on and on just in another podcast about all the movies I love, because, uh, I, I just think there's just so many incredibly one important ones and amazing ones that are out there. If Hollywood were to make a movie based on your life story, who would you want to play you? I, I am a person who, uh, for right or wrong, has been told I look like every actress that uh, originates from Australia. So I'm like a mix of everything. I'm, depending on your generation, I've gotten Olivia Newton-John, uh, Meg Ryan, Nicole Kidman, I get quite a bit, which is I take is all, all of them are quite flattering. Um, I guess I would say Nicole Kidman is the, probably the closer in age to me. Um, and, you know, but easily, it's just, I think... Kristen Wake, frankly, could play me because I think I'm more comedic than people would realize. And so um, as glamorous as I try to be, Victor, and, uh, you know, there is there are wonderful dress up moments in my business. I'm definitely more of a, a Kristen Wake falling over and wanting to make people laugh. Um, and so I would say Kristen Wake would be great, too. If Hollywood were to make that movie about your life story, what would you call it? Never ending story. I think that one was taken. <laughs> I think that was a kind of movie. But I would say that mine's, it's, uh, uh, it's, mine's unfinished, so I'll say The NeverEnding Story. Your favorite book? Favorite book would be To Kill a Mockingbird. In fact, I had a dog named, my first dog was named after Boo Radley. Um, so that one to me was, had an impact growing up. And I just, to this day, I think it's still one of the best. Your favorite song? Again, this is the movie and the song, but I would say this is like an old school songbird. Um, by Eva Cassidy, of course, anything by Depeche Mode for any of those, uh, those fans who is always good. Um, but yeah, I would say, you know, I'm kind of, I'm kind of a romantic inside. So I, I like to, I like to tear up when I hear songs. So I would say Songbird is one of those ones. The best advice you have ever received. I think the best advice I've ever received, and I, and I, this is advice I've gotten from my parents and from many influences uh, all through my life, is how you treat frontline, right? 
and how others treat frontline really is, uh, you know, a, a really important um, uh, indication of someone's character. So how you treat a receptionist, how you treat someone who is, you know, even, you know, the cleaning staff at the office. I, I often, um, I don't know, I have a soft spot for everyone that's just hardworking. I think it comes from the fact that, you know, my parents were so hardworking and I, and I see everyone as equal. And when I even had team members come in, potential team members, and how they behave with some of the frontline staff before they even get the interview, to me is a determination of whether they're the right fit. And it sounds awful to think that someone ever would ever treat somebody differently depending on what role they have, but um, it does happen. And I think that, um, again, it really reinforces the, the, the character of people who really genuinely are good people Good humans matter in our business, and, and I want good humans working with me and in my life. If you could go back in time and give your younger self advice, what would you say? Oh, I, first of all, I mean, the most important thing is congratulations. You're doing great, and just enjoy it already. Stop worrying about what the next thing is. Stop worrying about whether you did the right thing. Don't, don't, you're so hard on yourself. So stop and enjoy the moments. Savor them. And, and it's, I, I still have to say that to my, to not even just to my younger self, to today, right? It's, it really is, um, I, I think of who I was then when I was told you I was doing the glasses and dressing up and trying to be something. Just, you're doing great. You have so much ahead of you that you don't even realize is going to be so exceptionally exciting. Just stop and savor it a little more. My signature closing question, if you weren't in media, PR, marketing, what would you be doing and why? Well, funny I mentioned Kristen Wiig because I would I would probably not that Lauren Michaels necessarily wants me, but I would be writing uh, for Saturday Night Live. I think that would be incredibly terrifying <laughs> and exciting. Um, I also think writing uh, for streaming, like I, I, I have, uh, I am part of the, the TV generation, so you know my babysitter was television, and I have about a zillion ideas for TV shows. So I think anything in the content development um, and also comedy sketch, I mean, SCTV and Saturday Night Live were my, you know, was, were, were my phase and continue to be. And so I think, I think that's what I would be doing. Krista, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much, Victor. It was a real pleasure. That's it for today's show. For more episodes, you can go to mediapeople.ca or subscribe wherever you get podcasts. And don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Vic Genova.